Happy New Year and welcome to the First Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast of 2018. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Emma Adjimang, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle and Ben Yearsley, Director at Shaw Financial Planning. No one has a crystal ball, but when setting out to invest, it does make sense to assess the live investment landscape and what might influence it, and then build up an idea of the investment areas that look like they are well-placed to deliver, as well as getting an idea of those that look like they might be at risk. So every year, we set out a number of areas that we consider have the fundamentals to deliver good investment returns in the foreseeable future, along with what look like the best funds with which to exploit them. Emma, you've been putting this together, so what are some of the areas that could deliver going forward? Two of the areas that we think should do well in 2018 are Europe and emerging markets, and these are actually both areas that had a strong 2017, but the fundamentals remain strong, and so we think performance is going to continue into 2018. Okay, but, but Europe's had quite a torrid time, um, you know, in, in not the too distant past. So why do you think it could do well now? You're right, Europe has had a difficult last few years. But last year in particular, it seemed to start turning the corner with economic growth returning and really picking up and unemployment falling quite dramatically. Europe is also earlier in the growth cycle than many other developed markets, meaning that its recovery could have much further to run. And of course, the European Central Bank is helping keep monetary policy very loose and that could boost stock markets. Okay, I mean, that sounds all good, but does it mean European shares are expensive? Because often when somewhere looks good, the stock market prices go up. Valuations have certainly risen since early last year when European shares were very cheap. And that was because many people were worried about far-right parties coming to power in the French, German and Dutch elections. Um, That failed to materialise and as a result, valuations went up. But actually, compared to other developed markets such as the US, European shares still look attractive on a relative basis. Okay, now obviously Europe is um, quite a wide and diverse place of different markets, sectors, etc. So what areas might do particularly well? We think small and mid-cap stocks should really benefit because um, of a domestic recovery. In general, smaller companies tend to do better when economic growth is powering ahead. And we think that that could be the case in Europe. So small and, and mid-cap stocks should do well in that environment. Okay. Now, how can ordinary investors, like sitting at home, actually access this supposed investment potential in Europe or smaller companies or whatever? Yeah, definitely. Um, One good fund which we like is Marlborough European Multicap. It can invest across the market spectrum and so it will have exposure to some of those smaller companies we're talking about. It has almost half its assets in small and micro-sized companies and about 14% in mid-caps. And overall, it's had very good performance. So over one, three and five years, it has consistently beaten both its benchmark and its peer group. Okay, uh, that sounds like a a good option. Now, Ben, um, do you also think European equities are a good area to allocate to at the moment? I I think you're right. I mean, they they did have a good year last year. European small caps are actually the, um, I think they were the second or third best performing of the sectors last year. Um, Mainstream Europe was a bit lower down the list, um, but still performed well. And again, most markets did in 2000 and uh, 2017. There's very few down spots last year. Um, I think Europe actually does. I, th- I think I agree with what Emma's been saying that um, you know Europe still does look good value, especially 
when you compare it to someone like the US, you know, the, the PE of uh, the Eurostox 50, which is the kind of the 50 largest European companies, is about 18. The PE of the S&P 500 is it's, it's well north of that 25, 26 kind of numbers. Um, so just on pure, you know, just looking at basic numbers, Europe looks cheap and, and decent value. And I think it is because it came to the party much later. Um, the U.S. has been growing as an economy for the last three, four, five years. Europe really only came out of its problems probably a couple of years back. So it's much, much later into the cycle than, than say, the U.S., which is, yeah, at the moment leaves it looking decent value relative to, um, to other markets. Okay, now Emma flagged the case for European smaller companies, but what type of European equities do you like best and why? Um, So European small companies had a good year last year. In the long run, I'm a big fan of small company investing. So if you're looking at a 10-year horizon, you know, I love UK small cap, I love US small cap, I love global small cap, because I think that's where you get the growth from. The best growth will come from small companies that can grow quicker, grow their profits, revenues, dividends, and, and ultimately share prices quicker. So I think over the long run, I think smaller companies you know, should be in everyone's portfolio. did have a good year last year, though, in Europe especially, and I would probably still be looking more at the value end of the curve at the moment, the banking sectors, which we typically won't find in the small cap space, there'll be large cap, still look cheap, for example, uh, in my view. So sort of European financials still look very good value compared to lots of other areas. So I'd be looking at something, you know, funds that include you know, exposure to some of those, for example. What funds would you suggest? Well, there are, um, you know, if you want a, a deep, I wouldn't say deep value, but one that's very exposed to that kind of sector, you'd look at something like um, Neptune European, Rob by, uh, run by Rob Burnett. He's big into value, big into financials. Uh, you wouldn't have that as the only fund in your portfolio. But, you know, it's certainly one to uh, potentially consider um, in there. Um, other funds to look at, something like Henderson European Focus that comes as a fund or, or an investment trust managed by, um, managed by John Bennett that, you know, has a mixture of value and growth kind of stocks and, and different size weightings in there as well, i.e., you know, isn't just large cap, it isn't small cap, it's kind of a mixture. Okay, now we've all been saying why Europe's good and um, has potential, but um, I think we should also flag what the risks are. So um, what would your concerns be? Politics is still an issue. You know, Germany, for example, often seen as one of the most stable, I don't think has still got a government yet, has it, in theory? You know, it was the elections were in September, and I don't think a coalition has been agreed yet. Now, that shouldn't be an issue. Um, Italian elections this year, is there an issue there? Yeah, potentially still. Um, I'm not sure we're over the complete, uh, despite what I've just said about the financials looking cheap, you know, the banking sector isn't completely out of the woods yet. Um, European governments are still very indebted. You know, Italian government debt's about 120% of GDP. There are still problems in Greece, etc. So, I think there are a large number of there are a lot of problems um, out there that you could argue is why Europe is still cheaper than, say, the UK or the US markets. Okay, thank you, Ben. Some really helpful points there. 
Now, Emma, you also mentioned that emerging markets look well-placed to deliver good returns over the years ahead. So what's driving them? Well, there are a number of tailwinds. For example, low global inflation and the pickup in global trade in general are positive for emerging markets, as is the weak US dollar. And the recovery in commodity prices, such as oil, is good for commodity exporting emerging countries too. The emerging markets are not one country, it's a wide region, it's various regions. Um, so drilling down, you know, which of these economies are best placed? China looks set to lead emerging markets um, as growth still remains robust there and valuations are quite retractive. And despite the level of debt that the country has, um, which is continuing to rise, actually so far this seems to be less of a problem because of the amount of foreign reserves they've accrued and also the fact that economic growth is still strong. The country is also making progress in its transition from its exporting um, led economy to a more consumer led economy. Okay, so what funds could you use to get exposure to emerging markets? We like Fidelity Emerging Markets Fund. Um, Its three largest geographic exposures are China, South Africa and Hong Kong. And it favours companies that serve that growing consumer market in those emerging countries. The fund also has very good performance. Um, It's consistently beaten its benchmark and peer group over one, three and five years. Okay, um, Ben, what's your take on emerging markets? I'm a big fan. Um, I do tend to put emerging markets in Asia almost in one bucket um, because I think they're becoming, especially in the Asian emerging markets, so China and India, uh, the two big ones, they they are becoming more entwined. Um, No, I'm a big fan long term. um, You know, the growth, uh, it might sound a cliche, but you've got all the demographic stories, you've got the growth stories, you've got the less debt, um, ignoring China slightly, less personal debt growing middle classes you know there's huge numbers of many numbers of these stories you can trot out but actually they are all largely true you're going to get volatility you know markets going to go up and down much more sharply than say uk uh, or europe but i think again over the long term you need a decent exposure to these to these markets to these growing strong markets Okay, now you mentioned volatility, um, which brings me on to another point that emerging markets are probably rightly considered to be a a high risk area. Um, Obviously, they've moved on over the years. So, I mean, are they still really high risk? And if so, are the returns you get from them worth the risk? Yes. Uh, Simple answer to your question. Yes to both of them. Yes, they are higher risk. And yes, um, the returns should be greater over the long term. Um, you know, you can look at the short-term numbers and go, okay, China was the best-performing sector last year, rose 36%. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong was one of the best-performing markets globally, rising 42%, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can try to all these, you know, stats to show you how the markets have grown. And yet they are actually still cheaper than many developed markets. So they trade on cheaper PEs, cheaper book values, etc. Um despite last year's strong growth. But in periods of uncertainty and when the markets wobble, uh, these markets will fall quicker. If if the UK market falls five on global uncertainty, China may fall ten. So you've got to bear that in mind. That's why you have to be a long-term investor in these markets. I think over the long term, they will deliver you a better performance. But you, you wouldn't put your, you know... You've got to put everything in context. You have to have a balanced portfolio, and you don't just go, 
100% China in your portfolio. That would be a stupid thing to do. You know, as you wouldn't probably go 100% UK or 100% Europe. It's about having a mix of different investments in the portfolio that, that give you different things at different times. Okay, now you highlighted the volatility. What would be the other main risks you should be aware of before you invest in emerging markets? Uh, currency is important again. Um, it's interesting last year, so typically when you have rising US rates, that leads to a bit of underperformance in the in the emerging markets because of the currency-related issues. Um, but it didn't seem to happen last year, actually. The emerging markets, despite the fact the US raised rates three times, uh, the um, emerging markets, actually, emerging markets generally had a good, good 12 months, good 2017. Now, there could still be a, a knock-on impact this year, depending, you know, if, if US rates rise too quickly, for example, then uh, causing a slowdown in the US economy. That will probably have a knock-on impact into Asian emerging markets. That still do make you know, a huge amount of goods that get exported to the rest of the world. So that's, that's a risk. Politics, you still can't ignore that. You know, China is still a communist country. You know, we're, we're all investing there, we're all quite happy to invest there and take the returns, but it is still communist. Uh, Xi Jinping is probably one of the strongest leaders they've had in, in decades, actually, there. Um, and so it's still a command economy. You know, what they say goes. So you can't, you know, ignore that aspect when investing in somewhere like China that then has a, a huge influence on, on the rest of um, Asia and emerging markets. So it's just, just a few things to, to consider. Yeah. So if you're one of those investors with a high-risk appetite and a very long-term investment horizon and can take on emerging market risks, what funds would you suggest for accessing them? Okay. Um, so you, you'd have a couple of core funds, like the Fidelity one you've mentioned. That's one of my favorites, run by Nick Price. Um, you'd also have something like uh, Lazard Emerging Markets that balances out uh, the Fidelity Fund quite nicely. Um, so you probably, you know, something like those two. But then you'd also have something in there like uh, Matthews China Smaller Companies. You know, something a bit more unusual. You know, you'd have a couple of two or three core funds, and then you'd have something different in there. So Matthews China Smaller Companies is a, is a really interesting fund or a country-specific one like Jupiter India and have a bit more, you know, Indian exposure. Um, uh, you know, I do think India is, is probably the most interesting of the long-term uh, investment themes in Asia and emerging markets. So you'd have your core holdings and then you'd have a couple of different ones around the edge. Okay, thanks, Ben. Some really good suggestions. Um, and also see what Emma's other suggestions are for getting exposure to Europe and emerging markets in this week's Investors Chronicle on the website. Now, Ben, we've highlighted the potential for Europe and we've highlighted the potential for emerging market equities. But what other investment areas do you think look good to add to at the moment? Well, funny, you know, emerging markets in Asia were my... Um uh, key suggestions for 2018. Um, I suppose the other area is Japan. I'm still a big. I've been a, a big fan of Japan for a number of years now, and I think January every year, probably for the last four or five years, when I get asked, it's been one of my you know investment investment choices of the of the year, and it remains so this year. The market for a developed market is still much cheaper than you know Europe, UK, America. Um, on both a PE basis and a price-to-book basis. 
uh, inflation finally seems to be coming through into the system in Japan. They've got rid of this 20-year deflation or uh, deflation problem, or they're starting to. Uh, wage growth is picking up. Corporate profits are pretty good. So Japan is probably the other key area, in my view, the, uh, alongside Asia uh, and emerging markets, uh, as, as somewhere to look out for uh, for new investment today. Okay. Now, if you decide to put your money into Japan, um, you know, how long are you likely to have to um, keep it there for the possibility of generating decent investment returns? Well, I think any of these, any of these, any, well, any inve- equity investment, you've got to be looking at a three to five year minimum minimum time horizon. Um, I say things, you know, the higher risk ones, you want to go in for longer, but you've got to be looking at three to five years as a minimum for any equity investment. And that doesn't matter whether it's Asia, UK, Europe, Japan. Um, obviously, the riskier areas, I think, are better suited to even longer term investing. So the next decade, I buy stuff, buy funds, buy investment trusts, buy share, you know, not necessarily shares, but certainly funds and investment trusts. I buy on a decade long view. Typically, I don't buy for short term, uh, short term punts. I buy for long term holdings. Yeah, well, that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's investing, not trading, isn't it? <laughs> so, exactly, yeah. yeah. There's a difference. You, know, short, mm. you, can, you can trade shares. You shouldn't be trading funds and investment trusts. They should be there as long-term key positions in your portfolio um, that you should then go and buy and, and stick with, you know, unless obviously something fundamental changes in, in the meantime. But you should, have, you should buy them with the intention of, of keeping them in your portfolio for the very long term. Okay. Now, what funds do you like for accessing Japan? Uh, Japan, um, there's a number of decent funds. Um, I'd have something like uh, MAN GLG Japan Core Alpha um, uh, as a a core holding. I'd also look at something like uh, Bailey Gifford Japan. They've got uh, got it as a fund and an investment trust version. Um, So probably look at that. And then something slightly different uh, like Joe Hambro... Uh, Japan uh, dividend fund, uh, just taking a slightly um, different approach. Yeah, okay. I have to ask, you obviously mentioned the uh, the two Bailey Gifford funds, yep. and their lead manager, Sarah Whitley, is retiring at the end of April. Are you not concerned about that? Not really, no. The team's been, the team's been fairly stable. Uh, Matthew Brett, from memory, is taking over as head of the team. He's been in the team a long time. It's, it's business as usual basically okay now obviously japan is a developed market which potentially makes it less risky than perhaps the emerging markets but nothing's risk-free so what are the main risks investors should be aware of if they invest in japanese equities funds um it's an interesting one actually because because the markets are much cheaper, that that gives you some much more downside protection. I think, in my view, uh, funds and markets will fall and can fall, but it's still much cheaper. So that cheapness gives you some some safety and some degree of comfort. Uh, currency is always an interesting one with Japan. But if I've got my hold my J- Japanese holdings, I've got half in unhedged and half in hedged. So the currency moves a lot. Some of my holdings aren't affected, and some are, because it, it's been a, a big factor in returns at certain points in the last four or five years. So currency is uh, one thing to look at. They're obviously exposed to Asia, um, so Asian trade. So if there's a downturn in China, for example, that has a knock-on impact on Japanese companies. 
And I suppose the other big thing at the moment is North Korea and geopolitical. They're right there on the peninsula. If something happens in North Korea... <laughs> yeah, you could say, yeah. Yeah, if something happens in North mm. Korea and Kim Jong-un, you know, presses the button, then not only will global stocks suffer, but probably Japanese ones will suffer more than most. If there's still a stock market there, you could add, I don't yeah, know. Well, exactly. So yeah. There's a number of things, but mm. I do think that the price of the Japanese market and the quality of company there does give you a degree of comfort. I wouldn't say safety, because that's the wrong word, but a degree mm. of comfort. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, bearing all these things in mind, um, what kind of investors could consider Japan funds and you know, what percentage of their portfolios could they account for? Well, I'm quite, as I go, going back to, you know, I'm quite uh, bullish on these kind of markets. And, and you, know, I would, uh, you know, if you actually look at Asia, emerging, uh, emerging markets and Japan, uh, you know, higher risk portfolios, you could have 10% in each region comfortably. So 10 in Japan... 10 to 12 in Japan, 10 to 12 in Asia, and 10 to 12 in emerging markets. If you're a long, t- but you have to be a long-term investor. You know, if you're looking at the next three years, forget it. If you're looking at the next seven to ten years, you know, five to ten years, then I'm happy. And I've got in my ISA and my SIP, I'm running, I think, about a 10% position in in Japan, or just over a 10%. I think I've got about 10% in Asia, um, and probably about the same in emerging markets if you include individual country funds like india in there as well so you know i'm i'm quite bullish on these regions and and that's led to this kind of double digit weighting um in them in each region yeah okay now you did mention the importance of having a balanced portfolio um i think on that point um for most investors 100% 100% equity portfolio is not a good idea. So what non-equity areas do you like at the moment? That's tougher, uh, if I'm entirely honest. Um, I am nervous on bonds because we are now in a rate-rising cycle. So we had three rate rises in the States last year. You know, they're talking about another three potentially this year. It wouldn't surprise me with the latest... Uh, GDP figures and things like that in the States, you know, it's, it, the economy is doing well. So uh, we've had one rate rise here. So, so bonds aren't that exciting. However, within that, if you do have this period of uh, rising rates, things like floating rate notes funds, so MG have a global high yield floating rate note fund. So unlike a normal bond, uh, these bonds, the, the rates go up as interest rates go up. So you're slightly protected. So I think that's quite an interesting play um, at the moment. I think also high yield. So if, a, if the economy is doing well, then high yield bond funds will also do um, will also do reasonably well because they're the, the companies are slightly riskier, and therefore they need economic growth to, to to help them. So I think in the bond space, I think I'd stay away from government bonds at the moment. I, I can't see that they're attractive at all. Um, so I'd be looking at something like global floating rate notes and also um, potentially high yield funds. Away from bonds, it's difficult. Property, I can't get that excited by. Um, I still like things like healthcare stocks, but they're still equities. And I still like financials as sectors. But there isn't, you know, there's nothing screaming out to go, you know, that you have to go, I have to buy this at the moment. Um, Because a lot, you know, lots of assets are looking expensive. Everything's gone up in the last five years. Um, but within, you know, I think you have to look almost at subsectors of equities and go, 
well, actually, within equities, that sector hasn't moved. Say so financials, for example, and healthcare looks good value. And in the bond space, floating rate notes and maybe high yield. So it's looking around within the main asset classes and going, that looks good, that looks good, yeah. rather than saying that whole asset class looks good, for example. Okay. Just just turning back to the bonds, you mentioned floating rate notes mm. and high-yield bonds. How correlated to equities are they, and how good would they be as diversifiers in your portfolio? High-yield bonds are quite closely correlated to equities. So the equity markets go down, high-yield bonds typically go down, and vice versa. So that the, there isn't a huge diversification benefit there. I would say that floating rate note bonds our floating rate bonds are probably more diversified because they are, you know, as interest rates go up, they, in theory, the income coming from them goes up and they're quite st- they should be quite stable. So I'd say their correlation to equity markets is less. But certainly high-yield bonds, they are quite closely correlated to equity markets. Okay. Um, what are the main risks of these two areas? Um... High-yield bonds, I said, you know, if we have an economic downturn and, you know, we slip into recession, high-yield bonds will typically suffer. Companies go bust, which is a natural order of things, and, you know, you'll lose some money. Um, And they're also linked into the interest rate cycle as well. So they're influenced both by the economic outlook and interest rates. Um, Floating rate notes, they're not exciting, floating rate note funds. You know, it might deliver 4% this year. It's not going to be, you know, massive double-digit returns or anything like that. They're quite dull investments. But if you need exposure, going back to what you said, you know, having 100% equity exposure, if you need exposure and you want to have something different in your portfolio, that, you know, it shouldn't matter that it's only delivering you 4%. So they are linked into interest rates. So if interest rates actually start falling again, the returns on those bonds will fall as well. Um but I say I can't see that happening in the short term. Okay. Now, you mentioned M&G has um, a fund which offers exposure to um, floating rate notes. Yep. Um, are there any other funds that you'd suggest for getting exposed to either these or high-yield bonds? So, yeah, the M&G is the, is the pure you know, floating rate note fund. If you're looking at a high-yield bond fund, there are a number around. Uh, Kames has a very good high-yield bond fund. Very strong team. You know, so I'd look at, look at that one potentially. Okay, thank you, Ben. Some really good suggestions again. And also see our tips for 2018 for another non-equity area with which to diversify your portfolio. That brings us to the end of this week's show, but you can read our full roundup of the areas and funds we are tipping for 2018, as well as an update on how our fund tips for 2017 are doing in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a very happy new year.